Welcome, everyone, to the Veterans News Hour with David Corey and Richard Hurley, a national news and talk program dedicated to military veterans' issues. And now, your hosts, David Corey and Richard Hurley. Good evening. Welcome to the Veterans News Hour. This is uh, Monday, January the 10th, 2022. Uh, this is Air Force veteran David Corey along with my co-host Richard Hurley. We have lots of news and uh, information for veterans and their families, so stay tuned. Let's first go over to Richard Hurley. Hello, Rick. How you doing? What's new? Good. Hey, David. Uh, everything's good. New Year's starting along like every other New Year, I guess, and uh, just uh, working and Enjoying the post-holidays. Enjoying the post-holidays. Yeah, tonight we're going to uh, do something uh, that we haven't done in a while uh, for you veterans uh, who are listening, and is to kind of get into the the weeds, so to speak, the nuts and bolts of a of a VA claim from the time you you file the claim all the way through up until uh, going before the Board of Veteran Appeals. And then even after when the decision made and, and what that decision may be, it may be a remand. Um, so that's kind of where I'd like to start. And uh, before we start that, David, is there anything else you want to add? Well, after we, I think I'm looking forward to this discussion. After that, I do have uh, we do have some uh, few items of news, and uh, also wanted to um, highlight um, a publication uh, that will be of probably great interest to. Uh, veterans in the state of Florida, which is the Bivouac. It's an excellent monthly newsletter, but I'll talk about that after, after our discussion about the VA claims and appeals, uh, program. So, um, yep, this is, uh, it's a good discussion we're going to have. Go ahead, Rick. And I think, you know, I, I, I think it, it, it starts with the veteran deciding, um, how, how the veteran wants to proceed in, in a filing its initial claim. So, you know, you can, you can file it on your own. You can, you can hire a, you can go and get a VSO or a DAV, or you can hire an attorney. I mean, those are your options in the, in the beginning of the process. And you veterans, I think, need to, when you're making that decision, I think you really need to sit down and think long and hard before you just, just file the claim. And, and the reason I'm saying this is so many times, and it happened twice today, uh, I get contacted by a veteran who, who ha- has been working the process, what I like to call the prolonged process, and without success. And they're frustrated. And they've maybe filed a claim, got denied, File it again, and and they just kept beating their head against the wall before they finally turn around and say, "Well, now I'm going to hire an attorney. Now I'm going to call Mr. Hurley. Or I'm going to call Mr. Corey or someone else out there." Which is fine, you know. I understand that you're so frustrated. You figure, um, I better I better get get somebody in here who's been doing this for a long time and does it every day. But now I'm going to throw something out to you, veterans. And David, 
please chime in on this thought too. Before you before you file the claim, maybe you should ask yourself, maybe I should hire the attorney right away. Maybe I should get help right away. Because the one thing that is clear, and and I've been doing this for almost 10 years now, and David's been doing it longer than I have, but the one thing that is clear to me is that this is a complicated process. And the rules change. And the rules kind of change a lot. And if you're not up to date on these these changes, it's going to affect your ability to successfully proceed through the prolonged process and get a successful and favorable outcome. Um, and I'm seeing this over and over and over again that they're not succeeding um, and now they're going to hire the lawyer and the lawyer comes in three years later, four years later and, and kind of have to pick up the pieces and and move on. So that's that's the first thing you need to ask yourself. And I know all this business, you know, and I hear it all the time because I've asked the question, why didn't you hire the attorney the first time? Well, I didn't want to pay the 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 fee. You know, the 20% fee, which is what David charges and I charge. And most, most attorneys charge the 20% fee. And then I hear later on that they got fed up with the process, that they'd rather pay the 20% fee and get something than end up with nothing. So that's the first step. And before we get to the next step, David, what do you think about, you know, just that, the, the very initial decision that that veteran's going to make? Yeah, no, that's, that's important. Exactly what you said, which is they need to decide, um, you know, representation and along with that, uh, the strategy. And that's, that's why an initial consultation is so important. And let me, before I continue, let me just remind our listeners, uh, you know, this is a call-in show. If you grab a pen and paper, let me, let me give you or remind you of our toll-free nationwide call-in number because we would welcome uh, questions, comments, insights about what we're, what we're discussing. Our toll-free call-in number is 1-888-627-6008. Again, I'll say that more slowly. It's 1-888-627-6008. We look forward to hearing from you. 1-888-627-6008. Rick, I think, I think what's key is, you know, whether a veteran is, um, uh, you know, just leaving active duty, in which case a lot of veterans in recent years have benefited from the fact that, um, that there are transition assistance programs and, and, and programs while they're still on active duty, but nearing their separation where they get briefings about VA claims, they get assistance with VA claims, and lawyers are not even involved typically in that process. And that's, that's something that is a great improvement over generations before where there was uh, less knowledge the pre-internet age now with the internet veterans can go on to va.gov they can create a, an account they can file and many of them do they'll file a claim online but if they're um, if they're really serious about their their case what they need to do in my opinion Rick is realize that um, you know they need to adopt a different mindset than when they were on active duty. Those that are on active duty know that often that the mindset that they fall into is 
you trust the system. You trust the chain of command. You trust all the different agencies, the different departments, organizations within the military to take care of you because that's what they train you to do. That's what they they expect of you. You take care of each other as part of the team approach. So people have a lot of blind faith in, quote, the system, but they need to realize it's, it's a different world with the VA. Yes, the VA is staffed by a lot of veterans, but just as they know from from experience in the military, there is still a range of thinking. And the VA, you might think the rules are black and white, and they're not. There's there's room for interpretation, and also there's certainly room for the rules not to be um, followed to the, not only the letter but the spirit of the rules, which is supposed to be a pro-veteran system. So the first thing I would say, Rick, is they need to realize that that even though the VA, <coughs> excuse me, is supposed to be there to help them. It can often appear like an adversarial process. I know, Rick, you and I have talked about that a lot, that it, it seems like the VA is really sometimes looking for reasons to deny cases. Uh, just yesterday I was listening on the on the VA's YouTube station. They have um, a, 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 a new program they've had for maybe the last year. It's called the SITREP, and they have, uh, and this is a VA-produced video, where you have a, a VA employee interviewing typically other VA employees. And the specific question, which I thought was interesting, Rick, because you and I had talked about this before, was uh, they were uh, the, the VA interviewer was asking the VA employee, who himself was a Navy veteran, he says, what about this, and he used the word myth, what about this myth the VA denies claims just to save money? And, of course, the VA employee, who is a cha- claims adjudicator and a Navy veteran himself, gave the party answer, which was, oh, we're just here to apply the law, and if the evidence, uh, you know, supports a claim, there's no reason why the VA would uh, deny it. But, but, uh, and he was certainly giving his own personal view, which I think is uh, maybe true of some VA employees, and I think it's true more and more in recent years, particularly the attitude we see in the Board of Veteran Appeals. But at the regional office level, historically, Unless it's clear-cut, black and white, easy decision, um, if it requires any deep analysis or thinking about the evidence or analyzing or weighing the evidence, regional offices don't do a very good job at that, and that's proven by the by the high rate of appeals. All right, so uh, whether it's because they're trying to save money or just for any other reason, it really doesn't matter what the underlying motive is. The outcome is it appears to be, in many cases, a tough and adversarial uh, system. So uh, those are sort of my initial impressions. But I think to answer your question, Rick, I think the first thing they have to do is they have to recognize that they're dealing with the bureaucracy in, in sort of a different mindset. It has a different mindset than the military. It's not as much as they say they have a, they have a duty to assist and to help the veterans. In many cases, they do. Veterans should not blindly trust the VA. They need to uh, prepare. They need to help build their own case. They need to make it easy for the VA to do what they want the VA to do. And that really involves getting an experienced uh, advocate, whether it's a veteran service officer or VSO, like you say, or uh, an accredited agent or an attorney, an accredited attorney, accredited, I mean, by the VA, uh, whatever it is. Uh, they need to um, help and participate. Before I continue, Rick, let's go back over to you and get your thoughts. 
Exactly, David. You're right on point there. And and here's a uh, little follow-up to that. So let's assume a veteran's going to file a claim by himself. He doesn't want to pay the attorney. He thinks he can do it on his own or she can do it on her own, and they file the claim. What's the next thing that's going to happen? Well, they're going to be sent for what we call C&P exam, competent exam. Now, these are very important because these exams are what the VA is going to base their initial rating on. Sounds simple enough. However, and, and I'm sure, David, you get this all, all the time because I get it, when my clients go to the C&P exam, they call me first. And I give them more of a, a pep talk than anything. But the pep talk is to remind them you've got to divulge everything. If you're dealing with a knee, an ankle, you've got to talk about the pain involved. You've got to talk about what, what you can and cannot do as a result of, the, of that particular disability. Most of the time, a veteran goes in, he has the exam, she has the exam, they come out, and the VA issues their standard, it's not service-connected, there's no diagnosis, but there's some standard line that they use in their decision denying the veteran a claim. Or they'll turn around and say, well, there's something here, so we'll give them 0%, non-compensable, or we'll give you 10%. I, you know, I'm sure, David, you see that a lot. You know, for a knee, they, they throw 10% out the door, hoping the veteran might take the 10% and move on. When, in fact, that probably, that rating's probably at least a 20 or 30%. And one of the things that the VA's constantly overlooking that, and, and I, and I know this because I, I talk to these BVA judges, is the pain factor. So veterans, you need to, when you go into these C&P exams, that is the first, that's the first starting point for establishing the evidence for your claim. And if you're going to do it on your own, you need to be aware of what you need to do to sustain, because it is, it, it is an adversarial process. You're going in there and saying, I've got a bad knee. It happened while I was in Iraq. And, and this is what happened to me. And, and, uh, I went to the, the, the medic or I went and got some sort of treatment, something. You've got to put it on the record. You got to tell the, the VA. Uh, most of the time the veteran doesn't do that. Most of the time the veteran just goes in, has the exam, walks out, says, thank you. Thank you, doctor or physician's assistant thinking that, oh, I've done my exam, and now the VA is going to take care of me. And like you said, David, we're dealing with the bureaucracy and, and, and getting back to this this myth that they don't want to pay. Well, I don't think that's a myth. I think there's, you know, that, that it's, the system's built just like an insurance company. It's built not to pay these claims. The, another thing that veterans, when you go in for uh, your, your exam and you're, you've got a, a let's say, post-traumatic stress disorder, you got to go in, you got to tell them what happened to you in service. I was exposed to an IED. I, I, I was a combat veteran in Vietnam. 
you got to tell them what you experience and how that experience has been with you for the for your entire lifetime and all the symptoms surrounding that the nightmares the inability to form relationships whatever it might be but you've got to get that information to the examiner you've got to get it on the record and then the VA has an obligation to research the stressor and they've got to actually, you know, if, if you give them a date that I was involved in a battle in in Vietnam during the Tet Offensive or somewhere in 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 Iraq, Afghanistan, and you give them a date, they've got to research. They've got they've got an obligation to research that particular stressor. And oftentimes they don't do it. And whether they don't do it because they didn't get enough information from the veteran, or they don't want to do it because they don't want to help the veteran get his claim, who knows. But this is the kind of, you know, this is the kind of preparation that needs to go into all of these cases before, you know, you can expect a favorable result. And I think that the veteran has a hurdle, an uphill battle, when you're trying to do it on your own. Because like you said, David, I, I think there's this, this myth <laughs> that you're going to go in, that the VA is a, an extension of your military service, and you've got other veterans that are in there, and all you got to do is go in there and tell them your story, and, and you're going to walk out with a 50% rating. And it doesn't, it doesn't work out that way. So. Well, I think it goes to the fact what I said, which is in the military, um, you become indoctrinated, and this isn't a bad thing. It, it's just part of the military. There's a lot of positive attributes of of uh, the team mindset of the military, which is that uh, uh, you know you have to look out for others, and in turn you expect them to look out for you, and that 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 goes up and down the chain of command and laterally as well. So you have this mindset, like like of course I can trust them. I, like, of course, I can trust my chain of command or others. And of course, we know that's not always true. And, and, and people in the military are certainly not naive. I'm just saying it's just this, the general, um, well understood, uh, mindset. But I think the point is, in dealing with the VA claims, veterans need to be proactive and help prepare. And if they're representing themselves, just handling it themselves, they need to realize they need to give the VA information. I found with representing veterans for a long time that most veterans, probably like most Americans just in general, um, they do not enjoy writing down information. And they don't like uh, writing down detail information. Uh, they just don't enjoy writing. Most people don't. Now, there are exceptions. I've had clients that, that, uh, uh, when I'll say we need to work on a personal statement to describe the history of this, you know, the continuity of the symptoms you've had since you left the service 20 years ago. Need to, need to explain what happened in the service because the service medical records are silent. Um, and why that is. And I've had some clients, you know, they'll sit down, and they'll write a 20 page, uh, biography, autobiography, I suppose, about their military service, which is great. But the vast majority 
don't. And sometimes it's like pulling teeth. And sometimes they just don't, they just kind of disappear on you. And well, you might find that surprising, but, but, uh, some people, once they file a claim, they just think it's magically going to take care of itself. And it just doesn't work that way, especially on the tough, the tougher cases, which are the ones that, that I would tend to see. Um, and I know Rick, you tend to see, we don't, we don't see the easy ones that get granted. And there are a lot of those. We see the ones that are tougher, maybe tougher to prove that it was service connection, typically because the service medical records are silent. And they can be silent for a lot of reasons. A lot of psychological injuries are, you know, not reported. A lot of physical injuries aren't reported because there's certainly this mindset in the military, which is you got to be tough. And tough means you endure uh, physical trauma and you press on. And you don't complain. You don't go to the to the to the uh, clinic or the hospital or the medic, whatever organization you have. You know, whatever your organization has as far as medical organizations, uh, you don't go there uh, as some people might if they were in the civilian world. It just doesn't happen. In fact, Rick, you and I know from from veterans that we represented. Sometimes it's 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 a tremendous pressure. Just the opposite. Tremendous exactly. pressure, peer pressure, and even chain of command pressure, which is that if you're constantly going to the medics, uh, you're viewed as um, weak, you're viewed as a malingerer, you're viewed as someone just trying to get out of of uh, training or an assignment. That Really, that's, and people in the military know this. Um, so... Yeah, it goes to, it, it goes to, you know, one of the phrases that I routinely use in my, um, statements with my veterans is, you know, suck it up. And I'll say to them. So in other words, uh, Mr. Smith, basically, you know, you hurt your knee when you fell off the Humvee and you lie there for a little while and then it was get back on your horse and just suck it up, right? Yes, that's exactly it. And, you know, and, and, and the other thing that I hear all the time is if you do go to the, the medic or the clinic and you go more often than not, um, now your buddies don't know whether or not they can really trust you. And, you know, David, you, you served, um, and I've certainly heard this from, from other, uh, veterans that trust is, is huge. I guess it depends yeah. on what you mean by trust, because if they, if they mean if what you're saying is that, that that maybe there's doubt about whether the person is physically going to be able to be there to be there and and, and, to, and cover them, you know, particularly if they're in a combat situation or that they're you know, as opposed to not trust, not not a character issue, not like no, that a person is trustworthy, not at all, because but but trust in the sense of like not knowing if the person is going to be able to. Uh, uh, to handle, I'll give you an example from, this was a veteran that I represented years ago. He went over to Vietnam and arrived, uh, just before his 19th birthday in the Marines and he was out and, uh, you know, he was, he was taken out, uh, by helicopter to his unit and when he got there, uh, the unit was under, under attack and, um, and he freaked out. And he basically curled up in a fetal position um, with all the firing going on around him. And um, I'm, the point is what you were talking about. 
once the fighting was over, the other Marines that had survived beat the daylights out of them because they were, you know, they they were just that was their way of letting him know that, uh, you know, that that they needed to be able to count on him to say to defend them and like they were saving his life too, and uh, but it's part of I mean. It's, you know, horrific, and that was just the beginning of 13 months for this Marine over in Vietnam. So, that at the end of his 13 months, he was he was one of the guys, you know, doing the same to the to the new guys out in the out in the field. It was tough, and um, you know, a lot of stuff. This isn't in records anywhere. There's there there aren't uh, medical records that document all this sort of stuff that's that's. Uh, is going on, but it, it, uh, it was going to sort of the, the trust issue that you talked about, um, and uh, you know, a lot of horrific stuff that that happens that uh, people carry around in their minds, and uh, that's what we see. We see, you know, more and more knowledge, and over the decades of the psychological impact of war, post-traumatic stress, depression, anxiety, and these other things, and uh, it certainly doesn't affect 100% of veterans. It doesn't do that. I don't, I don't want to create some sort of stereotype that all veterans suffer from PTSD because they don't, but, but certainly many do. And, uh, and it's, uh, for many, it's a lifelong uh, struggle, uh, after that. And again, as far as filing a claim, typically you're not going to see medical entries. It, it might be, it might be years after they've left active duty where they even start talking about it. You know, to people, and uh, but meanwhile, if you've looked at their lives, if you did sort of like a forensic analysis of their life, forensic psychological analysis of their life, you would see how their life is basically unraveled in in many significant ways. And uh, can't hold a job, can't hold relationships. They're into drugs, alcohol, really reckless lifestyles. And uh, if you got to the root cause of it, which you might not even be able to get to because they don't want to talk about it, and, and it's become layered, it's been layered on top of that by other problems in their civilian life, arrests, times in jail and prison, um, you know, that if you were to all trace it to sort of the root, root causes, uh, you would see uh, the effect of the, of the particularly combat trauma. So there's a lot to it, and it's a matter of kind of bringing this back to the point we were discussing, which is telling the story. I mean, the VA is not going to know this unless you tell them, because it's not going to be there in medical records. And even if there is some entry in the medical records, it's going to be very brief, um, not thorough, maybe not accurate. So you got to tell the story. I found a lot of veterans. They don't like to tell the story. They don't like to write it. And that's why they need, whether it's a, a veteran service officer or an attorney or credit agent, they need as part of their strategy. Like, we're going to have to tell the story. It's going to have to be a thorough written statement. We may need buddy statements from others they serve with. We may need statements from family members uh, to, to present the case. That's part of building a case to make it easy for the VA to do uh, what you want. And uh, if they don't at the local level, meaning the regional office level, then at least you've built the case where you're going to get, hopefully in the current era, the Board of Veteran Appeals is finally in recent last few years, 
applying the law, I think, in a pro-veteran as they should. The law is supposed to be, in a, I'm simplifying it, but a pro-veteran system. You know, statutes, regulations, and a lot of case law talk about it. It's not supposed to be adversarial. It's, it's, it's a system that's supposed to be taking care of these veterans that have served their country, and uh, that's the way it's supposed to work. Well, so, it's the benefit it's benefit of the doubt rule. You know, fifty fifty. Yeah, the evidence, if the evidence is 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 in uh, equal equal uh, balance, if you could somehow measure it, 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 and that's not the way it, it. You know, you can't easily put evidence on a scale per se, but basically, yeah, that's the rule. If the evidence is equally balanced for and against the veteran, the law specifically says you you have to resolve the doubt in favor of the veteran. So the standard of proof is as far as service connection, but also the severity of a disability, is at least as likely as not, which means that it's at least a 50% likelihood of whatever you're trying to prove, whether it's that the PTSD that the veteran has now was due to trauma in the service 20 years before or whether the, the veteran's back injury, back disability that he has now is due to some trauma 20 years before, that sort of thing. So, yeah, that's just, and it's, it's not some whim. It's, it's specifically the rule is in the statutes, it's in the regulations, and it's reinforced by a large body of case law. So, um, okay, Rick, I so, know you got so, a lot of insight. So another... So, so now we got the veteran who's sitting there thinking, well, maybe I should go get a lawyer rather than try it myself. Uh, and there are a lot of lawyers out there. And like, like anything, you want to research who you want to, who you want to hire. Uh, and one of the, one of the things that I would always suggest to veterans is when you're consulting with a lawyer, Ask them how often do they appear at the Board of Veteran Appeals? Um, because generally speaking, most of these cases end up at the Board of Veteran Appeals. And you may end up going back twice to the Board of Veteran Appeals. Initially, you win your case, it gets sent back on a remand to the VA and they're supposed to do a uh, a rating on you and, and they still don't get the rating up high enough and you turn around and you, and you appeal it again. So it could be a little ping pong match back and forth to the Board of Veteran Appeals. So you, you, you want an attorney, like any attorney, who, you know, cause you, this is a quasi-adversarial, quasi-litigation type of proceeding, uh, who, who does that kind of work. Uh, anybody can just fill out forms for you and, and mail them in. But it's the other other stuff that is really uh, is, is really necessary. Let's say you do you did it on your own. You get your decision, and you were denied or you were lowballed. Now your first instinct should be, and you've got one year from the date of that decision to file an appeal. And it seems. What I'm, what I have seen over the years, and I'm still seeing it when I have my consultations with my clients when they did do it on their own, uh, three or four years ago, and then I said, what, what happened? Well, I was denied, 
what did you do after it was denied? Well, I didn't do anything. Well, that's a bad answer. So veterans, if you get your denial, that doesn't mean game over. By no means does it mean game over. And if you think it means game over, well, you're playing right into the VA's hands because that's what they want you to think, and then they don't have to worry about you ever again. You get that decision, go get a consult with a, a lawyer. File your appeal, appeal. Even if you have, there's a doubt in your mind whether you're even going to be successful, file it. Get it filed within that first year because you're preserving the effective date. The initial claim, when you file the claim, the initial filing is going to be your effective date for the granting of any retro payment. And you can, you can start doing the math in your head. If it's, if it's, let's say a thousand dollars a month and you get your decision a year from now and, and they go back and they say, well, we owed you a thousand dollars a month. There's $12,000 that they have to retroactively pay you. You don't file the appeal to preserve that effective date. You lose that $12,000. You can reopen your claim later on. You're, you're sitting out, you're at a cocktail party, you're at the VFW, you're somewhere where there's a bunch of veterans, and they say, you know, you really need to file that NEAT claim again. You know, that, you know, you should go see my doctor. You, and sure enough, you file it again. Sure enough, you've got a legitimate claim there. You've got, maybe you hired a lawyer this time, and now you've got the evidence to support it. You've done the preparation. You're ready to go. you got, you know, you're shooting with all, both barrels, and you win your case. I can't tell you how many times a veteran has said to me, well, can it go back to when I filed the claim? Now, there are exceptions, and David, you can jump in on this one, the clear and unmistakable error exception, stuff like that. But generally speaking, you're going to be barred from going back to that initial claim because you, initial filing date, because you didn't preserve the effective date. It's a common error that veterans make, and it's a costly one. Because you've delayed your process of, of of getting your monthly compensation to help you out in, in your own uh, livelihood down the road, but you also lose that opportunity to get that that nice retro payment, which, as David and I have seen over the years, can be a, a big help for a lot of veterans. But David, why don't you chime in on on that aspect of it? Maybe one, some one thing I would add is that um, as we talked about going back several years on this show, there was a major overhaul of the VA's uh, uh, claims appeals process by legislation that was passed in uh, 2017, and uh, it was fully implemented uh, about a year and a half later in early 2019, so we're coming up on the, the third anniversary, third year of this program, which the VA often calls the AMA or Appeals Modernization Act uh, system. And um, 
if a veteran filed a claim uh, and then was denied, the veteran has three options or three lanes, if you want to use that term. They can file a supplemental claim, but they need new and relevant information to do that. And, and with e- any of these three options, they can preserve the effective date if they file within one year of that decision notice. All right. They can file a supplemental claim, but they need new and relevant information, evidence. All right. That was not previously considered. The second option is what's called a higher level review, which for those familiar with the old system, what the VA calls a legacy system, that was, it's somewhat similar to, but it's actually less beneficial to the veterans, the old decision review officer, the DRO system that was in effect for forever. But the other option now under the AMA, the Appeal Modernization Act, is this so-called higher-level review. What is that about? Well, it basically means that some more experienced claim adjudicator in the VA will review the decision, which you're challenging, but they're only going to consider the same evidence that the VA considered before. And you might say, well, then, what are my chances with that? Well, they might have misapplied the law, or they might have ignored some of the evidence uh, overlook some of the evidence in some way or downplay the evidence, and this more experienced claim adjudicator, the so-called higher-level reviewer, will make a, a fresh determination. And I've done some of these with some success, but there's some limitations to this, which is, first, in the higher-level review lane, you don't get to submit any additional evidence. You can argue that there was an error and point out what the error was, but you don't get to submit any additional evidence. You don't get to submit another medical opinion, uh, any other evidence. And the other limitation, which was uh, less than the old decision review officer one, is that you don't get a face-to-face hearing with a higher-level reviewer. Um, you can request a an informal telephone conference a one-time informal telephone conference with the higher-level reviewer. It's informal, meaning uh, there's not a transcript made of it. It's typically a rather brief phone call. It's either between the veteran if the veteran is not representative and, it represented, and if the veteran is represented, then it's only between the higher-level reviewer and that representative, whether it's the veteran service officer or an attorney or an agent. And it's a it's an informal phone call, basically, to identify errors, uh, point out, um, you know, where the VA went wrong and what the remedy is that's requested. Uh, so you might say, given the two I've talked about so far, supplemental claim, higher-level review, why would they do that instead of going to the board appeal, which is what you've been talking about, Rick? Well, the first two choices, supplemental review, supplemental claim or higher-level review, the VA typically will act much faster. You don't have to wait as long as you do to get to the board. So if, if and this is where it's, you have to analyze the evidence and the errors in the particular case. So there's not just one black and white rule, like there's only one choice of going to the board. Uh, the VA, their goal is, whether you file a supplemental claim or higher level review is to get that done on an average of 125 days, which is much faster than if you go to the board. So if in your particular case, if you know you've got some strong additional evidence and based on their reason for denying your case, you thought, okay, I I, I have a home run right here with this evidence. I, I can't lose. 
try the supplemental claim. You get a faster decision, and if for some reason the VA disagrees, you still have the option after that, in preserving your effective date, to still appeal to the board. So you have to analyze the pros and cons. And the same thing with the higher level review. There could be a very, very obvious error that the VA made that you know that not even not even the most pro-VA higher level reviewer is going to hold stand up behind that. File a higher level review. You'll get a faster decision, and if it's not satisfactory, you can still appeal to the board. Now, that brings me to the third choice, the third lane, which is the board appeal, appeal to the Board of Veteran Appeals. The Board of Veteran Appeals is part of the VA. It's just at the top of the pyramid. It's not outside the VA like the United States Court of Appeals Veterans Claims. The BVA, the Board of Veteran Appeals, is part of the VA. Uh, on a plus side, these judges, and there's more than 100 uh, BVA judges now, uh, they're veterans law judges. They're basically administrative law judges, but they tend to be extremely experienced and very knowledgeable, as one would hope, with um, VA cases. Many of them work their way up the system as uh, VA attorneys before being appointed as judges. In other words, they weren't just plucked out of out of uh, civilian practice doing corporate law and made a a, uh, a veteran's law judge. It doesn't work that way. So they have a lot of expertise and experience. And my own personal opinion, observations over the last two or three years, is that the judges, it's sort of like the newer generation of judges compared to the ones 15, 20 years ago, is uh, they're more thorough, uh, they are essentially, I think, applying the law as it should be, which is in a pro-veteran way. Uh, and we're getting, I think, better hearings, better decisions than we did years ago. But if you choose the board lane, I'm just going to cover these quick and then turn it back over to Rick, is you, even within the appeals, the appeal to the board lane, you have three sub-lanes, if you will. You can ask for a direct review, which is you don't have anything more to submit any evidence to, to submit. You may want to make some arguments, some written arguments, but you don't have any additional evidence. You don't need a hearing. That's the fastest of those three lanes. But the time standard, the goal for the for the BVA is, is basically a year on those, sometimes longer. Um, you also have the evidence submission lane where you choose to submit evidence, but you don't want a hearing. Or you can ask for a hearing. And now we know the last few years, particularly reinforced by COVID, regional offices are shut down or have been. Some have reopened. Is that that hearing is um, the so-called virtual telehearing, which is the great news is, and Rick, I know you've done countless numbers of these hearings. You can do it. You, the veteran, can do it from your home. You can do it on your computer. You can do it on an iPad. Some, anything that's connected to the Internet. I've had a veteran once do it, do the hearing from uh, his smartphone. He was he was in a mobile home. He was in I mean an RV uh, traveling, and he did it from there. And and the and the, the veteran service officer or attorney can be at another place. And the judge is typically working out of his or her home. Most live in the D.C. area. So these hearings and the VA the BVA has really done a great job in the last uh, couple years uh, to try to get these hearings scheduled um, relatively quickly. But then. Decision is typically not made at the day of the hearing. You might have to wait anywhere from weeks to sometimes many months uh, to get 
a decision after that. And then there's more options if you're not happy with that decision. But anyway, I just wanted to cover, Rick, you, you had focused a lot on the board appeal. I wanted to mention that there are three lanes if a veteran is not happy with the initial decision, the supplemental claim lane, the higher level review lane, and then the board appeal lane. But which is the best choice? really need to look at the evidence that exists and the evidence that you might be able to develop and what the errors were, and then make it a, a sort of an informed decision. So, Rick, back to you. And I would make that, those are all great points, and I, veterans, I would make that that decision with the advice of an experienced veteran representative, whether that's a lawyer or a VSO or a DAV. I went, um, I went to take a look at the chart that the VA provides, and it, you know, there's a chart and it says supplemental claim, higher level review, board of appeal, and, it, and in that chart it gives you all the things for you to consider. And it's a nice looking chart. And generally speaking, it's, it's a good guide, but you really need to sit down with somebody who's experienced to make a decision as to which, which avenue you want to take. Um, personally, I prefer the, the board appeal, but, and that's where I've had most of my success. Uh, so, um, yeah, uh, David, with regard to those virtual hearings, I've had clients who literally are on their smartphone in their car, pulled off on the side of the road, um, do, doing the hearings. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of crazy, but uh, the BBA is, you know, making a lot of, making it very doable for for veterans to be able to have their hearings. Um, so, so now you've had your hearing. What you know, the the, the judge, you you've succeeded. You won your case. You get a decision. Most of the time, the decision is going to be something along the lines of granting a service connection, um, remanding the case back to the VA for a rating evaluation. Yes, that means you got to go back to the VA and you got to go back for another exam, just like you did the first time. You got to go back and hopefully this time you learn from your mistakes. You've got somebody helping you out. And you're going into this next exam ready to go and ready to tell the examiner everything that's going on with that particular disability. And then hopefully uh, the VA gets it right, you get the decision, you're happy with it, and the case is over. Uh, or you, you, you're not happy with it, in which case, guess what? You file another appeal. And you go back to the Board of Veteran Appeals and you state your case again. And then hopefully by the time you've done it, done it the second time, you get it right. And believe it or not, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying this to you veterans because that's what I've had on many occasions. I'm not just making something up. This is what's happened in a lot of, a lot of my clients' cases. Uh, or, you know, the, the court may even send the case back and saying there is new evidence, and they're not going to necessarily say that you're service-connected, and they're going to send it back to the VA for further development on that issue, which means, you know, you need to go out with your representative, and you need to uh, 
get yourself service connected, you know, uh, whether it's with buddy statements or, or some other evidence which uh, clearly shows that y- your particular disability occurred while in service. Uh, so you've heard a lot of what David and I have been telling you tonight about this process, which I call the prolonged process. It's not easy. And David and I have been preaching for, for years now with both with our clients and on this show. Two Ps. Patience and persistence. If you have patience and you are persistent and you keep move, you are working to, to move your claim down the field, much like in a, in a football game, you're moving the ball downfield. If you're doing that, I firmly believe that you will be successful and you will win your case. Because at the, at the end of the day, if you, if you stay persistent, you will wear down the people over at the VA and maybe you get somebody new looking at the case. Who knows? But eventually they give up. And and you, you've made such a strong case that they grant what grant the relief that you're looking for. But that day of granting the relief that you're looking for starts the first day you decide you're going to file a claim. And you really need to sit down and not just fill out a bunch of paperwork and mail it in. David said, you need to have a game plan. You know, life is about preparation for everything. Get up in the morning, you put two feet on the ground, you make your bed. You prepare for the day. Dealing with the VAs, no different. You've got to be prepared. If you're prepared, I think you will be successful. What do you think, David? Yep, I agree. Those are all great points, and I hope uh, hope our listeners uh, gain some insight. And uh, if you know someone that's uh, going through this process, they're not able to listen to the show, we'll have an archived uh, podcast up on the website, bbsradio.com, forward slash Veterans News Hour within a few days. Before We're about running out of time here, so I want to, before we go, I wanted to uh, highlight something that uh, veterans, particularly in the state of Florida, uh, will will enjoy and appreciate, and that's an outstanding publication. It's called the Bivouac. It's free. It's a veterans news. It's a it's a news magazine. It's put out monthly, and you can access it for free on the website, which is uh, bivouac.org. It's spelled B-I-V-O-U-A-C.org. Bivouac.org, and uh, their January 2022 edition is out on the website. And what I've enjoyed about it, because I've been reading this for for, for many, many years, is uh, I enjoy reading the different advertisements and the, and the information from uh, veteran organizations around the state of Florida. There's a lot of advertisements for services that uh, veterans uh, may use, may need. But here's an example. And uh, for those of you that are not as lucky as Rick and I to live in the great state of Florida, Wintertime is a wonderful time to be in Florida. I think, Rick, you'd agree. But here's an example Absolutely. of something going on that I saw advertised in the bivouac 
uh, this month. It's Take a Vet Fishing. They actually have a website, takeavetfishing.org. But uh, the VFW posts 4256 over at Madeira Beach in Pinellas County. We're having great weather right now, folks. So get on down to Florida, and it's, this is a, a free Take a Vet Fishing event. It's basically an all-day thing. You'll be out in the boat for about five hours all afternoon. They'll take you offshore uh, about nine to 12 hours, about hours, miles, and then you'll spend about three hours fishing and then in about an hour back to come to, uh, to, uh, wrap up the day. But go to the website, uh, the website is the VFW4256.org. The T-H-E, in other words, VFW4256.org. The event is Saturday, January the 22nd. So it's coming up in a couple weeks. It's an all-day event. It starts with uh, free breakfast at VFW Post uh, 4256, which is John's Pass at Madeira Beach. Uh, they have uh, some other events. It's free to veterans, but you have to register. You can't just show up. You have to register. It's limited to the first 65 veterans. That's how many can go on uh, the boat. The, the, uh, the deep-sea fishing boat is uh, from Hubbard's Marina. You can check out uh, their website, hubbardsmarina.com. Anyway, this is just one of many examples. I thought of a great uh, veterans event, take a vet fishing event. So I thought I'd mention that. Rick, over to you. Yeah, that's a great, um, that's a great, great idea. I know I play in a lot of uh, veteran golf outings, and we have them throughout Florida all the time. And those, those are great events. Those, they're a lot of fun. Half the people can't play golf, but it doesn't matter. You're out there having fun and sharing stories and. Uh, just having a good, good time. So, uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of events here in Florida. We're very, very fortunate this time of year to be. I mean, today, what was today? Today was 72 degrees. <laughs> Beautiful. Right. Uh, I like to talk about our coaching in the care program. This program helps veterans having difficulty transitioning to home and home life. Returning home can be a tough adjustment and loved ones can help. Coaching in the care offers free coaching to help you help your veterans. The program's number is uh, toll-free, 1-888-823-7458. It's hours of Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. The coaching and the care number, again, is 1-888-823-7458. In addition, I'd like to once again remind listeners that if you know a veteran who is suicidal or in a crisis of any kind, the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs also has the Veterans Crisis Line to help. That number is 1-800-273-8255 and press 1. Many veterans have committed suicide because they did not get the help they needed. Help them get the care they need to cope with their problems. Once again, that number at the Veterans Crisis Line is 1-800-273-8255 and press 1. Back to you, David. Well, it's time for us to go. I'd like to thank all of you for listening to the Veterans News Hour here on BBS Radio Station 1. We'd like to thank our producer at BBS Radio, Mr. Doug Newsom. We hope you'll tune in next week, same time and station, which is 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, 5 Mountain, and 4 p.m. Pacific time here on bbsradio.com, Station 1 for another edition of the Veterans News Hour. Until then, stay safe and stay healthy. I hope you have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Veterans News Hour with David Corey and Richard Hurley. We hope you found this week's program very informative. Be sure to invite your friends and all the veterans you know to tune in next week when we'll have another great show on Veterans Issues.
Meanwhile, you can listen to our other recorded episodes on the Veterans News Hour webpage on bbsradio.com. Thanks again for listening to the Veterans News Hour.